Welcome to Tech Talk Digital Supply Chain Podcast, where we will help you eliminate the noise and focus on the information and inspiration that you need to transform your business, impact supply chain success, and enable you to replace risky inventory with valuable insights. Join your Tech Talk host, Corinne Bursa, the 2020 Supply Chain Pro to Know of the Year. With more than 25 years of supply chain and technology expertise and the scars to prove it, Corinne has the heart of a teacher and has helped nearly 1,000 customers transform their businesses and tell their success stories. Join the conversation, share your insights, and learn how to harness technology innovations to drive tangible business results. Buckle up, it's time for Tech Talk, powered by Supply Chain Now. All right, welcome back, Supply Chain Movers and Shakers. Corinne Bursa here, and I am your host for Tech Talk, the digital supply chain podcast. In this episode, we're going to dive into the topic of replenishment, and we're going to think about replenishment as the cornerstone of your business profitability. That's right, replenishment as the cornerstone of your business profitability. Now, just so we're all on the same page, I want to make sure we understand what I'm talking about when I say replenishment. This is the area of your supply chain planning that offers a significant competitive advantage. In the simplest form, replenishment is the process of resupplying product that has been consumed or sold. It is for those products that you want to be always available, where your consumers or your customers need access to those on an ongoing basis. So how do we do that? Well, as you know, we have to anticipate future product needs. And how do we do that? We do that with demand planning and forecasting, but then we're gonna produce or procure or simply ship product based on the specific uh, time phase needs to avoid stockouts or to ensure always available. Now there's a number of different attributes that go into consideration. So when you're calculating replenishment and you want it to be optimal replenishment, right? I need it to be as cost-effective as possible. I'm talking about looking at my current inventory levels, considering order lead times, looking at production lead times, looking at my guaranteed service levels. And that is usually by customer. And then things like minimum order quantities or shipping and delivery frequencies. So you can see how these add up pretty quickly for some complex calculations that help you drive this important part of your business. Now, if you're already doing some math in your head, just relax for a moment. Today, I've got with us an expert in the area of many things supply chain, but we're going to focus in on replenishment as the cornerstone of business profitability. And we're going to tap the expertise of the one and only Christine Chadoub. And Christine is the former vice president of global value chain optimization with Ralph Lauren. Christine, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Corinne, for having me. It's so great to, to see you and kind of be able to dive into this topic. 
you know, Christine, you've got an impressive background. You've got a career that spans just about every area of supply chain planning, from merchandise planning to demand planning, inventory optimization, supply planning, of course, replenishment, which, which we're going to talk more about in just a moment. And, and then all the analytics, all the advanced analytics that wrap around that. Now, Christine, you've also been part of a number of supply chain transformation initiatives. So not just keeping the wheels on the bus going, but actually transforming the way we get from point A to point B. And you've done this on a global basis for one of the most iconic American apparel and accessory brands. So, Christine, my question to you, my first question of many, is what does replenishment encompass in your experience and why is it such an important part of the planning discipline? Sure. Well, when you, when you think about replenishment, at least when I think about replenishment, I think it's really important to separate out the operational side of replenishing to the versus the products that you are going to be replenished. So, you know, those products, those core items really need to be bought in by the entire organization. Because if you're going to make that inventory investment in these products and get the most out of them, everybody needs to be on board. So the characteristics of these products really need to be examined because the products aren't right. Even if you have a great process, it's really not going to help you that much. So what does that mean? If the products aren't right, what should we read into a broad phrase like that? Yeah, there's a couple of things talking about, you know, the entire organization needs to buy in. So on the creative side, does the product represent your brand really well, right? Can it sit with your more seasonal products uh, all the time and really support them in the best possible way? Does your commercial team and your, your, your customer partners believe the item has year-round desirability, right? With kind of a low seasonality. You can have some ups and downs throughout the months, but is our customers going to be there and want that product for most of the year so that inventory investment really pays off? Do you have a good supplier who's very stable? right? That can help you manage this business. Because when you're in a replenishment product category with your supplier, it's not just here's my order, take my order. They are in the business of managing this, this product with you. And you've really got to partner with them. And it's also good to have another supplier that can do it too, just in case something goes sideways, because something always does go sideways. It always does go sideways. But that's the thing I love about supply chain professionals is they are problem solvers. At the root of everything, they are people who can think through some pretty complex situations and look at a variety of different ways to, to solve a problem. Yeah. So, and most important part, sorry, sorry, Corinne, is you've got to make sure you've got those healthy margins in there too. And I want to talk about that for just a minute because we want to talk about business profitability here. Um, but before I, I jump into actual margin of those products, I'm wondering a couple of things. One, when we talk about products that are always available, give us just a couple of examples of something that's always available, because I think it'll help our listeners connect with the fact that it's something that typically a consumer is looking for and wants to be able to have access to on a regular basis. So it's core items. Um, sometimes they're called basic items. 
but they're not necessarily basic in terms of design or manufacturing, but they could be a highly designed item, but in a basic color, like a white shirt or a navy baseball cap or a, a pea coat or a blazer, which is more of a replenishment item that are really needed all year long. And the customers are there for it all the time. So those are great examples. Those are, those are things that I could see purchasing in winter, spring, summer, fall, um, exactly. especially when you think of a white shirt, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we always are looking for that crisp, clean white shirt in a cut that we like and that we know fits well and meets our needs. So, um, so great example there. So these are products that need to be always available and they're always available because the consumer needs them at different points in time. When you're entering those, those service um, agreements with your customers, so a retailer in this context, you know they want confidence that those, those mm-hmm. items in the sizes needed are gonna be available, right? So we're not just talking about um, one size fits all garments, um, certainly hats and, and different accessories um, may have fewer sizes, but when we think of shirts, especially men's shirts, for instance, that skew portfolio or a size portfolio um, can be pretty complex as well. Yeah, it adds up pretty quickly. Once you add in some dress shirts or pants in menswear, then those skews really explode. If you look into the breadth of sizing in women's wear, children's wear can be highly complex. When you mm-hmm. think about toddlers and four to six and and as kids grow and you offer the same types of products so when you start to add in that skew complexity then you really you really do need some support of some good planning systems to keep all of that data straight so that you can manage the replenishment part of it and not chase the data around all day good point good point now you started to dive into the topic of margin and i want to go back there so you mentioned having some good margin associated with these products tell me a little more about that and then i i want to ask maybe another question related so you know once you've got the core product you, you've vetted all their characteristics and everybody's on board you've got a good replenishment process set up now replenishment can be your best friend right it's going to be your most your your low maintenance best friend that I'm not going to say you can run itself, but you can really gain a lot of revenue and profitability and drive that through these products without paying a lot of attention to it day to day from a top down standpoint. Once you've established it, it can run and you've got those periodic check-ins that are always useful to make sure you still got the right products, that you've still got that right vendor profile that you still got that need out there. But, you know, once you keep doing all those checks, the system can keep running. And now you don't have to use the time or the energy of the merchants or commercial partners or supply chain folks to keep re-examining it, right? You've got it. Now let's let it run. So I think that's a really good point. And I do think that this is an area where supply chain planning solutions can add extraordinary value for the reason being, number one, that we have more history associated with the products, which typically means that the model, the demand model, the forecast, the inventory policies, um, you'll have a higher level of confidence around 
the repeating cycles, if you will, of need in the marketplace. Um, in fact, Christine, I see replenishment as an area that is ripe for automation. And maybe you're not gonna go 100% automation, but maybe you can look at those tolerances um, and performance criteria to get pretty high performance with very low planner interaction. Would that be a fair statement? I totally agree. And I think replenishment in these core products is the place, if you have an organization that's maybe a little bit shy of these types of analysis and, and fact-driven fact decisions, it's a good place to introduce it, right? Because you can see that data coming together very quickly and you can show the patterns in a visual way that everybody gets. And it really just adds to the trust factor to mm -hmm. let this process run. Because the more you tinker with it, the more you can kind of mess it up. So you really want to have that stability of the data and the stability of the process so that you can get the most value out of it. Great point. So Christine, when you have these conversations with the C-suite, with the executive team, what are the two or three things they need to understand about replenishment and how it contributes to that overall business profitability? Well, it's really looking at the metrics. So making sure that you've got stable and consistent key performance metrics that can really um, drive that analysis and you can show and anticipate, right, where you're going to see trouble. There's really not one time where I could think of where when a problem became, you know, came to the fore that you didn't see it coming if you had looked at the mm -hmm. data, right? So those C-suites executives expect you to be looking at the data and finding those breadcrumbs so that you can anticipate when you're going to have maybe a downturn in demand so that you can pull back on your inventory planning or if you can anticipate where you may be having an out of stock or something's performing better than you thought and getting those strategies in to fill in those gaps. Replenishment can really add to your customer loyalty and build that brand mm -hmm. loyalty because they know they're going to go to the store or go to that website and they're always going to find the item that they want. While they're shopping for those seasonal items, they're going to refresh their, you know, their replenishment or core products. So you want to make sure that you're getting that customer satisfaction and that you're anticipating any problems that may arise before they get to the C-suite. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that's, that's really um, a great example. You know, I've got two boys. I think we've talked about this before. <laughs> you know, if I'm throwing in a new pair of khakis, I'm going to get them a couple of shirts to go with it. And you know, a few additional items, but I may actually go to the store for that pair of khakis and then fill my basket with some other, some other items as well. And when I know the fit is good and mm -hmm. the quality is good, um, it helps to make those decisions very straightforward and easy. So um, I totally, I totally get that. When, when you're thinking about, you know, leading a team, so you've led a global team in, in the area of supply chain planning for a number of different areas of the business, but when you think of some of the important leadership roles, right, in supply chain transformation, what's the one leadership strategy that can help make a difference pretty quickly? Like what one thing can our listeners do or try that's really gonna amp up the overall performance? Well, I'll tell you a little story, Corinne. So okay. 
you know, in large organizations, they sometimes have, you know, those annual surveys, right, mm -hmm. where you get a lot of feedback, all the employees get to participate, and all the managers at every level get feedback on how the company is doing, how they're doing as a manager. And in those surveys, there's typically a section about employee empowerment and effectiveness, right? Do the employees feel empowered to do their job? And do they have the resources, knowledge, and technology to effectively do that job? And I always got high marks on, on that that uh, series of questions, right? I was in the right quadrant from my team. And I felt it took a lot of pride in that. Yeah. And I do still take a lot of pride in that. And the, the reason why my teams felt empowered and effective is because I made a conscious effort to connect the work that they do every day to the goals of the organization, mm. right? They did not feel like they were in a silo with no information. And when I say the goals, I don't mean you know, like the lofty vision statements or mission statements that many organizations have, those are good, but that's more marketing. Uh, I'm talking more of those micro goals that you're trying to execute to every day. So I don't know, do you want to, um, you know, increase your turn? Do you mm -hmm. want to reduce end of season markdowns? Do you want to find sustainable solutions for packaging? Do you want to um, you know, leverage your free trade zones differently? Whatever those goals are, um, I've shared them with my team so that they felt connected to the how the organization is going to be operating and connected to how their role fit in with those goals. Yeah, that's that's really important. And I think that works in every discipline, right? Is is understanding what you're doing day in and day out and how it actually connects to um, the brand promise of the company that you're with, but also how it contributes to the growth and profitability of the business as well. Because there, I'm going to tell you, there are hard days in every business, right? And, and then there are days that are a lot of fun and celebration, but we all need to get connected and understand how we can really stay focused in moving the business forward in the most efficient and effective manner possible. I think it, you know, it doesn't mean that you're, you're operating unilaterally or not trying to build consensus, right? Mm -hmm. But it, it allows you to frame up issues and solutions with those goals in mind. So you're, you're looking through the same lens and you don't have to spend time and energy and effort to kind of get everybody on the same page again and again and again. So sharing those goals and communicating those goals really connects people to their work and connects people to the success for themselves, for their teams, and for the company. I, and I really agree with that because I think that it is imperative to describe what good looks like also. What is good performance? And it's not always just the metric or just the number. It's understanding why the number allows us to do some other things um, throughout the process. So I, I think that that's a really good example. When you think of the number of teams that you've led, um, mm -hmm. Christine, I think a number of those teams have been global yep. as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, long before COVID in the virtual world, you developed some pretty strong virtual skills and virtual leadership as well. So when you think about how 
that strategy translates into tangible business results. Can you give us an example or two? Sure. It really streamlines decision-making, right? So if you know what the goals are and you're looking at issues that come up on a day-to-day basis, so let's take, um, you want to reduce end-of-season markdowns. So on on the manufacturing side, maybe someone's coming to you like, hey, we have this chance to place this order for the seasonal item, right? Really high demand, unanticipated. Can we get more? Of course, the answer is always yes, you can get more. But when's it going to commit? It's going to come in at the, at the end of the season, right? So that is a markdown waiting to happen. So if you, <laughs> if, you, know, that. <laughs> if, you if you've got that goal in mind, right? If you've got that in the back of your mind, then it helps you to not push back necessarily, but to say, hey, you know, here's what could, here's what can happen. Here's a sequence of events. Sure, I can do it. Yes, I can do it. We can air it in. Here's the cost of that. What is the cost of this decision? Right. Maybe it's better to sell out and not chase that demand, even though even though it's, it would be great if we had anticipated it. Sometimes that doesn't happen. So if you've got those goals in mind, then then you can you can make those decisions or at least frame up the options with uh, with that lens. Another example could be, you know, on packaging. If we want to reduce our packaging and you see things coming through on the design side that really individualize the packaging for similar items, you can sort of push back and say, hey, is there a way that we can make this universal? Can I use a single type of packaging for these like items so that I'm more sustainable in this solution and not having to order specifically for each item? Oh, great example. I like. I really like the sustainability angle there as well. And I know it comes into play with labeling as well, right? In mm-hmm. countries where product is being offered, that there are a number of ways to approach that. So maybe you do one label that can actually meet the needs of, of multiple countries or m- multiple trading zones as well. I, I do remember there was a, a time in the industry when all of a sudden apparel labels seemed like a notebook, you know, inside inside your garment. There, it's like there a little book. Be, yeah, like three or four pages. And um, we've certainly come way down from then. But the goal there was to be able to have the flexibility to ship that product to a number of different customers. So yeah, um, those, you know, those rules change. Those rules change pretty quickly. They can change pretty quickly. And there are some QR code solutions or smart labels that, you know, contain, if you scan it, contain all that data that would normally be in that book. And mm-hmm. it's always, it's always evolving and looking for technical solutions for those physical problems can, can sometimes be the answer as well. Yeah. And Christine, I think one one other area that um, perhaps people don't always appreciate is that when we look at demand and supply, so that demand to supply translation is not always one for one, right? Because we have minimum order quantities that we would work with our manufacturing partners on or our sourcing partners on. So even though I might have demand for, say, 100 units, I might have to order 150 units. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Very, right. very, very true. And so you that's why those planning systems, having those in place 
where now you can sort of pull from the future. You can see what those plans are anticipated to be in the future. And you can pull some of that forward so that you can make your minimum order quantity or make your process more efficient because it's, you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation, the organization has bought into this item. So now I feel empowered to make this decision to pull these units forward so that I can get the best margin on this item and not pay a higher price on a lower quantity when I know I'm going to just reorder it a month later or whatever that cadence is. So it sort of ties it all together. If you've got the right product, you empower the people to make the decisions about that product, then it smooths that decision-making process. Yeah, great example. Great example there. So when when you've used the strategy or similar strategies in your area of expertise, when we think about core products, so these replenishment products, I've called them a couple of different things. You'll have to excuse me. I think I've called them always available. I've called them basic. We may have called them, you know, replenishable items. But usually these terms are used to describe those products or core products that we always want in our portfolio. So they're not just a seasonal item or a fashion item. So when I think of fashion, that's a one and done, right? I'm gonna gonna bring that in for a spring selling season. And when it's sold out, it's done. At least in this flavor and cut, you know, it may come back in a slightly different um, silhouette in the future. But in the area of core products, I really have the chance to think about them differently. So walk me through just a couple of things that get discussed around actually optimizing demand and and availability around these always available items. Sure. Well, first I would say, yes, there are core products and there are seasonal or fashion products. But they don't exist in silos because very often the components are shared Mm. across both so that you can make those negotiations or those decisions or those, um, you know, evaluate risk based on is this component, this fabric or, um, you know, what, what the buttons or whatever it is that you're engaging with. Can they be used across multiple products, even if some of it is replenishment and core and some of it is not? And then you, that's your first area of optimization. Can my components be shared and can I reduce the risk mm-hmm. of this decision by ensuring that I've got a, a home for everything? If one thing goes sideways, I've got, you know, plan B over here or whatever that is. So that's sort of, you know, the first thing that I always looked at is, you know, what, what else, where else can I use this? Making sure that I'm looking at all the angles. Yeah, that, that's a great point, right? So even in apparel, which tend to have smaller bills of material than we may see in some, you know, high-tech or durable goods, but there is a huge opportunity for commonality across mm. different items or different product families when you break it down and look at those components of thread or fabric or um, buttons or finishing um, uh, and fasteners for the different goods. So that's a great example. Help me understand, Christine, does every season start at zero or does every decision start at zero or am I always just getting kind of incrementally better when I focus on replenishment? 
I don't think every season starts at zero. Certainly replenishment does not. But on the on and in, in replenishment, you know, that that's some place that I don't think you actually talk in seasons. Mm-hmm. In replenishment, you have to talk in smaller increments of time or different increments in time because it it affects your bottom line in different ways than a seasonal product may. Right. So you've got to, um, in, in my experience, thinking about replenishment in terms of fiscal months or fiscal weeks and periods is a better way to look at it rather than seasonal. Now, you want to marry it up with the seasonal thing so that you can optimize any you know, usage across the different products. But the, the trend and the analysis of replenishment is not across a season. It's across months. So you could be looking at replenishment on a you know December through March basis, mm-hmm. and that could be part of holiday and cruise, or it could be part of spring and summer, right? So you've you got to match up the months, but the those trends happen across the months and not the season. So you've got to you've got to I think looking at them um, a little bit differently than seasonal products is the way to go. And, and when we think of replenishment, I know we've been talking a fair amount here about apparel and, and accessories, but we see replenishment in a number of industries, right? So these techniques are very mm-hmm. important and very effective in a number of different industries, including things like food and beverage, um, where we've got core products or core availability that's on the shelf. And then it may change with some seasonal items that come in and come out associated with it. We see it in in a number of different consumer goods, Mm -hmm. um, but we also see it in durable items as well. Have you seen that in your career? Well, I think, you know, in the the auto industry, replenishment is a a huge category, right? Mm -hmm. There's lots of industrial products that you want to have those components readily available. And there's lots of industries that do that leverage. They can leverage the same types of core components across multiple and different final products so that they're really reducing the risk of making that investment in those core components because they can make different things out of them. But I think the replenishment conversation is universal, right? You can look at any industry, soft goods, hard goods, electronics, and you can find a component of replenishment in that industry somewhere along their value chain. It may be further up, it may be downstream, but there's something in almost every industry that you can apply some of these principles to. And how do we identify some, you know, how how do we identify maybe a product that gets introduced in a seasonal um, capacity but it does really well. And we mm-hmm. see that maybe it's got legs associated with it. What are some of the things that might happen where we consider pulling that in to a core item? Yeah, I, I love that question because you, you know, you find you find those winners, right? Mm-hmm. And you want to now, you know, the consumer has spoken and you want to now introduce that. So hopefully you've got something that you can leverage if it's a, a certain fit of a pant or a shirt and you've got fabric that you're using for different fits already on replenishment, you can leverage that and quickly move into, um, move, move into that new item. That's happened you know, many, many times where we sort of borrow those components to support a new item that we didn't anticipate. Um, and that's always fun when you, find, when you find those things. But again, I would go back to, 
examine the characteristics of the product. Make sure that they meet your criteria and don't get too drunk on the percentages, right? Mm -hmm. Because you've got, you know, a lot of folks are like, oh, this sold, you know, X percent. You've really got to examine what does that mean? How many did they actually have in that store? Right. right. Before we get a little too ahead of ourselves, because that that can that can trip you up. Right. If you've got the wrong item on there, you make that inventory investment, you react maybe without the hard facts or a long enough lens. You want to be react. You don't want to react quickly, but you also want to make sure that you don't overinvest. Yeah. Now, what you just said is really important. Um And I would imagine that sometimes in apparel and retail, we get really passionate. I I say apparel and retail, it probably happens everywhere. We get really connected to the products that we're planning or the products that we've designed or introduced into into the marketplace. I, I think one of the important things that certainly you've experienced in your career is stepping back and being objective and, and letting yeah. the data speak. Tell me how that you know kind of manifests itself in leading a team or responding you know to enthusiasm that might be coming from other areas of the business. Right. Well, you know, I used to have a nickname. They called me Christine Calculator, right? Because I. <laughs> I'd be, you know, I'd be, they, they get very, uh, you, you can get a lot of passion and enthusiasm around something. And then, you know, you, you want to respect that enthusiasm, right? Because, and you, cause you want to respect the process that brought that product to market. That's getting a good response. Mm-hmm. So the important thing is to go back to those core principles and really look at, well, what do those numbers really tell us? And, you know, I, I don't like, no, nobody likes, no. So I don't like to say, I don't like to say no. I like to say, you know what, let's, let's look at it. Right. What are, what are my options? There's more than one way to do this. You can have sort of in-season replenishment where you make a short-term investment and you let that item sell out. So you reduce your markdowns. So it keeps the customer satisfied. There's more supply there, but you don't get caught when the demand sort of tapers off. But I think it's important to be respectful of the enthusiasm that gets brought to the table and look at options to support that enthusiasm in the the way that that brings the least amount of risk to the organization and that keeps everybody's eyes open to, okay, here's three ways that I think this can go. It could cost us this much. It could, it could reduce us time on this way, but here's, here's the bottom line of how I think it's going to play out and let this, let the facts speak. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's a great, that's a great example. And let's talk about in a leadership role, like you had um, in, in global operations and optimization, you've got to manage your team against a variety of different metrics and responsibilities. So you have, if you will, a responsibility to your job and your role within the company, right? So you're, you're leading your, your team, but also the business is looking for a certain revenue number and margin contribution that's going to get contributed in a number of different factors. When you think about that, what what does it mean to you or what advice might you have for our Tech Talk audience? 
Well, I, I, I really do think that there's a difference between your job and, and your role. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. I, you know, your, your job is your job. You've got to, like you said, you've got to meet those revenue goals. You've got to meet your metrics. You've got to lead your team with vision and communicate across the organization so that you've got that support and that you're supporting other people. But how you achieve that job, how you execute the day-to-day activities to achieve what, you know, what the job demands, I think is what says more about you as, as a leader. Right. I think, you know, you, you really need to manage yourself with integrity. You've got to treat others with respect. And as you navigate across the organization, if you're doing that, I think it builds trust equity. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not just for you, but for your team. And that feeds right into what we talked about earlier about the teams feeling empowered and effective, right? Other teams trust you to do, you know, perform what you said you're going to do. So that you treat them with respect and you manage yourself with integrity and that builds trust within the organization. And I think, you know, these qualities as you, as you demonstrate them, the next generation of leaders is going to emulate it. And I think that I think that that's so critical and it, it builds like an ecosystem of success if you've built up that trust equity. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. So, Christine, I've got kind of a, a wild card question for you. So how do you do that now in our world of virtual workforce and hybrid um, work environments it's very different from the days when we could run down the hall and sit with somebody and kind of talk them off the, you know, the ledge or the emotional phone call they just got off of, you know, what, what have you found to be really effective in motivating um, a virtual team or a hybrid team um, and still building that trust and confidence, um, which makes, you know, makes it a lot more fun, number one, but you also get a team that's willing to go the extra mile when they need to. Yeah, I think you have to be consistent, right? You, you have to be a consistent leader and the consistency has to go across the board, whether you're building trust upward into the C-suite so that you get that information that helps you form those micro goals that we were talking about earlier, um, building trust across with your partners, the merchants, the supply chain folks, the IT people, you know, all the way across so that they support those goals and building trust with your team and trusting your team that you you guys can achieve those goals together. Now, doing it virtually, it takes time. Mm. It takes a different, it takes a different muscle than just showing up on the Zoom call and you know reading from a script or having the same meeting over and over and over again the teams will get bored with that and they'll call you out on it if you're lucky right if you're lucky they'll call you out on it because if they don't two things can happen right they you know in their mind they quit but they stay with the team they stay in the organization right and you kind of lose that capital on the team every day 
or they quit and they actually leave. You know, if they quit and if they quit in their mind and stay, that's like the worst possible outcome. And and for for you and the team and the organization. So it takes time having those one on ones, having those pre meets, mm-hmm. and having that trust and letting the team see your own vulnerability as well, and not having that same meeting over and over again. If they don't see progress, if they don't see change, if they don't see that you're changing and the organization is changing, then they're not going to trust anything that that you say, whether it's the best strategy in the world, they're they're not going to buy into it if you don't, as a leader, take that time to build that trust universally. Yeah, yeah, that is a great example. And I do think that building trust does take additional time and you need to be very intentional about it Mm -hmm. because um, in a virtual world or even in a hybrid world, you don't get the opportunity to see somebody's full body language or you're not having the same opportunity to observe them with others and, you know, and that builds part of that credibility as well, that you see that um, the person is the person in every environment, right? And that you're getting a consistent and genuine direction, especially from a leader or a manager in, in an area. I think that that is, is really good insight and advice for us. If I, if I switch back, Christine, to thinking about replenishment. hmm Let me get your final thought on replenishment, specifically as a cornerstone of business profitability. I know you're passionate about this, but leave our listeners with, you know, just a few final thoughts on why they should maybe spend more time and effort in this area or where it can fit into their product portfolio in a very effective way. Yeah, I think that for core products, you first need to make sure that you've got the right products. So get the right products and really examine what value those products are bringing to your organization today. Do you have the right ones? Are there ones that you haven't thought about yet? Let everybody come to the table. There may be there may be a sleeper out there that you that you don't that you don't recognize because the data maybe isn't telling you that because it's maybe isolated in a certain region or a certain channel, you've got to expose that data and make sure that you're finding finding those opportunities wherever they may be. And then having the guts when something's not working anymore to cut it out, Mm. right? You've got to have the guts to say, okay, this one isn't delivering anymore. What's the next one? And using data to anticipate that so that you're not caught short with nothing. Right. So maybe this item isn't working anymore, but what's the next version of that item? Let's get that into the pipeline so that we're ready to make that transition. So while it can run itself and be, you know, the like I said, the the low maintenance friend that everybody wants, you've got to pay attention to it at the in the right way and at the right time to ensure that it stays fresh and continues to deliver for your organization. Yeah, that, that's a great example or, or some great recommendations, actually. And I, I think, you know, I would add on to that, that you're not only building trust in your team, you're building trust in the systems that you're using, the data that's being consumed mm-hmm. into the systems, right? I've got to trust that it's good quality data, that those demand signals are good, reliable signals, 
that my replenishment has performed well over time or my inventory as an investment has performed well over time you know all of that comes into play so it doesn't it's not just dependent on trusting Christine Chadub as my vice president it is entrusting the entire process um, and the digital supply chain planning environment that's being used by the business. So exactly. Um, I think that the, you know, if you get caught up into over explaining the metrics or mm-hmm. the data behind replenishment, it's a losing battle for most mm-hmm. things. If the word standard deviation comes out of your mouth when you're in the C-suite, like just <laughs> close it up, walk away. It's not going to happen. But if they trust that you know how to look at the data and you know how and the the metrics that they do care about, what is your service level? What Mm -hmm. is your bill rate? What is your replenishment lead time? How have we cut time out of this process? If they see that those results are happening, then they don't need to know what's happening behind the curtain. Not that you want to keep it hidden, but there's no reason to explain it over and over again. You're going to lose the audience. So let the metrics that matter to your senior leadership, let them lead the conversation. And then you won't ever have to talk about standard deviation again. Yeah. So give those to us again. Just rattle off those lists of the ones that that senior leadership is going to want to hear, because I don't want to hear mean absolute percent error. I have seen <laughs> eyeballs glazed over when I'm describing what MAPE is and what the planning horizon is. So go back, tell us again a few of those metrics that really (laughs) matter to the senior management of the organization. Right. What is your inventory turn? What is your customer order fulfillment rate? How have you reduced your end-to-end lead time so you can make a later decision? In replenishment, a later decision is always a better decision. So demonstrate that you've worked with all of your partners to reduce the timing between when you have to make that decision and when that product arrives, you know, in in your distribution center or at the customer's door. Um, What is you know, what is happening with your suppliers? Are you, are you doing your due diligence? All of those things contribute. And if those metrics are remaining stable, if you're not getting chargebacks because you've, you know, haven't met your service level agreements, then you're not, you're not even going to have to talk about it. Mm. Right. The, the best thing about replenishment is not having to talk about replenishment. It's kind of like fight club. You don't have to talk about it. <laughs> All right. Great example there. Christine Chadib, what is the best way for our Tech Talk listeners to connect with you? Sure. Well, I'm on LinkedIn. I am the only Christine Chadub on LinkedIn. So you absolutely can find me there. All right. Well, that's great to know. Well, Christine, thank you so much for joining us today. I've really enjoyed this conversation on replenishment and getting your perspective on how it can really be the cornerstone of profitability. So thanks for your time. It's your BFF for sure. (laughs) It's your BFF. You've got that. You heard that here first. All right. (laughs) Supply chain movers and shakers, thanks so much for joining us today on Tech Talk, where our goal is to eliminate the noise and help you focus on the information and inspiration you need to transform your business and replace risky inventory with valuable insights. We'll see you next time here on Tech Talk, powered by Supply Chain Now.